Uh, good morning, brothers and sisters. A joy to be with you this morning. Grab your Bibles, if you will, and go ahead and turn to the book of Numbers in the Old Testament around chapter 13 or so. That's where you're going to be in your reading this week. We're going to pull some truths from that, so go ahead and find your place there. If you don't own a Bible, there's one in the seat pocket in front of you. That's our gift to you, so you feel free to take that this morning. And I uh, want to just uh, kind of catch you up. It's really, really good to be with you. I've been my heart's full this morning, just personally, for several reasons. Um, just even singing this morning, I thought back this time one week ago, I, with five other brothers from our church, was literally singing and worshiping alongside brothers and sisters in Christ in South Asia this time last week. And we were literally outside under a tree, having church. You could have tr- church under a tree, by the way. And uh, it was a glorious time. We were there with some believers who had only known Jesus a few months. We were literally with some people who had uh, been the first followers out of their entire families, first followers out of their entire village or the entire area. Uh, we were in a country of 1.3 billion people. 1.3 billion. Uh, for security reasons, can't even tell you what the country is, but it starts with the letter I. <laughs> Ends with India. So you can probably figure that out. We do have to be very careful about that because life for Christians in India can be very difficult. And we were there with some believers who literally, once they came to Christ, their family physically beat them because they could not believe that they were coming to Christ. And we had the opportunity to work with unreached people groups, had the opportunity to train leaders. And you say, What's, why are you telling us that this morning? Well, that's us as a church. Doors are open for us as a church to take the gospel, not just here, but to the ends of the earth. We'll be telling you more about that. Very excited. Uh, also tell you that is uh, yesterday I just got off the plane after about 30 hours on a plane. I really don't know what day it is. I don't know what time it is. Jet lag is real. Uh, if I say anything untrue, just email Dr. Daniel Broyles. He'll take care of it this morning. So, uh, secondly, thrilled this week is Impact. Impact's coming up. You'll hear more about that later. You have an opportunity to pray for some 500 plus students. That's what this is. Going to be here on our campus, 13 or so churches. Just think about it. We as a church get to impact our entire area by being hosts for this thing called Impact. And it takes an army to do that. Many of you are involved, but you'd be praying about Impact, be involved this week, and this thrill. My favorite weeks of the year is coming up with Impact. So looking forward uh, to that. Numbers 13. Let me introduce what we're going to be talking about this way. When I was a kid, I. I grew up, and actually it's still true today, but I grew up as a Star Wars fan. I, I love the Star Wars movies. Now, I'm a traditionalist. I like the older movies better than the ones today. I'll be real honest. My kids give me a hard time about that. But every Star Wars movie starts the same, starts this way. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Now, it starts that way, and you really, you're intended to, to recognize what you're getting ready to watch is not true. It's a myth. And it happened a, a long ways away, even if it did happen. And the point is, it has really no implication on your daily life today. It's pure entertainment. Sometimes we read the Bible that way. So as we're walking through Bible 2020 and we're, we're embarking to read through the whole of Scripture this year together and teach through the Bible and you're reading it on your own, we're in a, we're in a portion of the Old Testament that we're reading a lot of stories and narratives about the children of Israel. And it, it would be easy to say, that happened a long time ago, a people far, far away. Does it have any impact on my life today? 
Now the Apostle Paul helps us with that. You don't have to turn there, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he's dealing with some of these truths and these events that are recorded for us in what we call our Old Testament. And Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 10, he says, Now these things happened to them as an example Gives us a picture of truth to look at. We can see truth with skin on, so to speak, in the lives of David and Joseph and Abraham and Moses and these men and women of old. It's an example. Then he goes on and he says, and these things, they were written, now catch this, for our instruction. Word instruction here literally means admonition, our exhortation, even our warning. I'll say all that to say, as we read through these stories of the Old Testament, just as kind of a sort of a big truth this morning, but really just the overarching idea we're going to chase this morning is this. The stories of old are written to instruct, admonish, and warn us today. That's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at a, an account that c- comes out of numbers, and then I'm going, to, I'm going to teach really brief this morning about it. I'm going to walk us through some big ideas together, and then Pastor Daniel, Pastor Paul are going to join me on stage, and we're going to... We're going to try to apply some of these things as some of your elders that we see in the life of this church. It's not just a long time ago, galaxy far, far away. How do these things apply to us today as those who are pursuing the Lord Jesus today? So that's kind of what this morning is going to look at or look like and really think it'll be helpful and challenging for all of us. So let me set the context of what's going on as we come to Numbers 13. Again, you'll get there in your reading this week as we're reading along. The people of Israel are on the move. So we come to Numbers 13, they're about a year out of Egypt. The exodus happened somewhere around a year prior. They've been encamped at the foot of Mount Sinai. They're exactly where God had told Moses over a year before, you will come here, you will bring the people back here, you will worship there. They're back at Mount Sinai. God is providing food for this band of over one million people supernaturally. Imagine trying to take care of over a million people in the middle of nowhere with nothing. Every morning they wake up and God provides manna. At night, he provides meat for them to eat, supernaturally caring for the people of God. They've received the law. They've received the instructions to build the tabernacle, this clear picture of what worship is to be. And here is an incredible picture for us. Even though the children of Israel were delivered from slavery, they tend to still think like and act like slaves. In other words, just like me and you, if you're here and you're a believer, God has pronounced some things true about you in Christ. They became true about you the moment you followed Christ. The Christian life is learning to live out that truth in everyday life. These these people of God, if you will, have been brought out. They've been set free. They're no longer slaves. They don't have the voice of the taskmaster in their ear anymore. But sometimes they live like it. And sometimes they revert back to that. And you see that played out. And they're about to enter a time here called the wanderings. They're going to literally wander around in the desert for 40 years. Now what gets them there? What was the the stream of events that ends up these people just wandering? Numbers 13. That's that's kind of the context. That's where we're going to pick up. We're going to start reading there. The pillar of cloud which was the the representation of God himself, has led the people, as we open up in Numbers 13, 
they're on the verge, the, the boundary line of the promised land. Remember, God had promised, I'm going to give you a land. He had promised that back to Abraham. They're there. They're not in there yet. They're right on the boundary of the promised land. That's where Numbers chapter 13 picks up. Verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out from the land of Canaan. That's the promised land. That's this land of promise. That's the same land it is today, the land of modern-day Israel, right there in the Mediterranean area. Send some men to spy out the land. Now listen to this next phrase, hugely important. Which I am giving to the people of Israel. There's no uncertainty here about God's intention and God's promise, I'm giving you a land. It's yours. It's by grace. He has promised it all the way back in Genesis 12 to a man named Abraham. You've followed that promise in your reading. God's repeated it over and over again, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, Exodus 3, Exodus 13. You're going to a land flowing with milk and honey. It's yours. Take it. God has spoken what is true. The land is yours. And he says, I want you to send out some men. I want you to spy out the land. Go check it out. What's it like? Come back, give us a report. Now, we know from the book of Deuteronomy, it's the people who really wanted the spies to go out. God kind of accommodates them, sends these 12 spies out. Before we go into the land, let's get a, let's get a report of what the land is like. So the spies go. They travel around the land for 40 days. The people of Israel have never seen the land. They are walking not by sight. They're walking by faith in what God has promised to give them. Just like you and me. The spies go into the land. They check it out for 40 days. They take some pictures. They post them on Facebook. They come back out. Then we pick back up. Verse 25. You can read all of their account there on your own. Verse 25 says, at the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. These 12 spies, they come to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the people. That's important. I use my imagination a little bit, but can you imagine the people, how excited they were to get the report? I mean, they've been waiting for 40 days. This is their new home. This is what God has been promising them. They're at the bated breath. Every day they're kind of looking over the hills. Are they coming? Are they Where are they? Finally, after 40 days, here comes these spies. And it says, all the congregation were there with Moses and Aaron. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. It says they brought out grapes and they brought out fruit of the land. To show them, man, it, fl- it flows with milk and honey. Prosperous land. And they told them. We have come to the land which you sent us, and it does indeed, into verse 27, it does indeed flow with milk and honey, then this is its fruit. Now, I don't know what happens at this point. Again, I use my imagination a little bit. The report comes, there's Moses and Aaron, all the people hear it. They say, man, it's a great land, flowing milk and honey, it's incredible. And all the people, yeah! The kids are running around, they're high-fiving our new home, we can't wait to get there. That's kind of the mood when you get to the end of verse 27, it seems like. Finally, yes. The air is about to go out of the room in verse 28. The report continues, and the Bible says the spies continue, and they say to Moses and Aaron, However, 
or nevertheless, maybe your translation says, the people who live in the land are strong. Wait a minute. There are people living in the land? Oh, yeah. They're strong. You mean to carry out God's promise is not easy breezy? There's going to be a struggle to live out of God's promise? Oh, yeah. That's a good word for us. The people who live in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. Jericho is one of those cities, by the way. You'll hear about that about 40 years from now, later on. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Anak was a giant. There's giants in the land. There's some big, mean people in the land. Malachites dwell in the land. The Hittites are there. Jebusites, Amorites, Mosquito Bites, they're all there. Pastor Mike, that's the oldest joke in the book. The Canaanites, they're dwelling by the sea and along the Jordan. Now listen, you've got to get the, the feel of what it was like to be there. Literally, you're going from the point of, yeah, we're ready to go, to now you're realizing, oh no, this is going to be impossible. The spies report, and this is what's so important, they, they bring back a report of what they saw with their eyes, what they experienced in the land, and then they give their own perspective on what they saw. Verse 31 says, Numbers 13, 31, spies continue, they say, thus, here's our perspective, Here's our best understanding as your appointed spies. We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And the people are crushed. This is a huge moment in the history of Israel. You don't hear the spies coming back with a reminder, Oh, but remember what God's word says. Remember what God has promised. They come back with what they saw with their eyes, what they personally experienced in the land, and their own perspective. And even in verse 33, they say, and when we were there, we saw the Nephilim, again, big people, giants, and seemed to be ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. In other words, now they're even distorting reality and said, we're like grasshoppers. Our perspective is we're nothing, and they're strong. We'll never be able to take the land. And their conclusion Sounds like this. See if this sounds familiar in your own life sometimes. We know what God has said, but. I mean, we know God promised us the land. We've been hearing that for all these years. We know that. But based on what we see, based on what we've experienced, based on our own human understanding, the enemies are too fierce, the cities are insurmountable, and we'll never be able to inhabit the land. You ever do that? You sure do, and so do I. They are making major life decisions for their family, their people, the nation, not based on what God has declared to be true, but what they've seen with their own eyes, what they've experienced in their life, and their best human understanding, and it results in disaster. Some of you all are doing that right now today in your life. So am I. So what happens? Verse, uh, chapter 14. Keep going. So how did all the congregation respond? Well, not well. Then all the congregation raised a loud, uh, raised a loud cry. I mean, they're, they're coming unraveled here. This is not what they thought. 
And the people wept that night. All the, verse 2, and all the people of Israel grumbled. Don't you hate that word, grumble? The word's murmur. People are murmuring. They're going back to their tents. They're murmuring. They're saying, this is not what we thought. You know, you know who's to blame for this? That Moses guy. They grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, would that we had died. Now, this is the congregation, the children of Israel, speaking back to Moses and Aaron, kind of collectively. Listen to what they say. Would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Can we just stop right there? That's like almost a child of God who's experienced the redemption of God in Christ and saying, it'd be better to be back and be a lost person. They are spurning the activity and the grace and the faithfulness of God. It'd be better we go back to Egypt. Or would that we had died in the wilderness. Why did he just kill us off in the wilderness? Verse 3. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? You know what they're saying? God can't be trusted. God can't be trusted. You know what he's doing? He's bringing us into this land to kill us off. All this defeating of Egypt and all this parting the Red Sea and all this feeding us every day for a year. Forget all that. You know what God's doing? He's, he's going to kill us off believe that they're questioning the character of God verse 3 or middle of verse 3 says our wives and our little ones they're going to become prey translation what about our kids what about our family what's this here's what they're saying if we trust God what's going to happen to our kids we would never say that Would it be better not to go back to Egypt? Verse 4, and they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. We're done with this guy, Moses, because he speaks truth to us. We want to find someone who's going to tickle our ears and tell us what we want to hear so we don't have to do the hard stuff and go into Canaan. Let's just go back to Egypt. Believe that? What was the outcome here, Pastor Mike? What happens? Again, you'll read this on your own this week in chapter 14. The outcome was this, verse 22 God speaking here, declaring of those who had led them in, these spies. And by the way, ten of the spies brought a good report, two of the, or a bad report. Two of the spies brought a really good report, Joshua and Caleb. We'll talk about them in a minute. Verse 22 says, None of the men who have seen my glory and my signs and all that I did in Egypt and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice, none of these men, verse 23, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. Wow. Listen, when you're reading through the Bible and you come to verses like this, I hope you stop, grab a pen, make some notes, just pray something, Lord, help me. Here's the promise of God that was theirs, and they're going to miss it. They're going to miss this promise of God. Why? The generation who saw God destroy Egypt, the generation who saw God part the the Red Sea, the generation who defeated the most powerful army in the world, they've watched God supernaturally feed a million people every single day. This generation are not going to enter the land of promise. Instead, they're going to turn and wander in a wilderness for 40 years until every one of them dies off, God says. (laughs) Here's my question. What is going on here? God, why, why, what is this that's so significant that it drastically impacts these million people for the next 40 years? 
Sometimes as you're reading through the Bible, you'll find that the, the New Testament or a verse or two in the New Testament will give you a commentary of what you're reading and an explanation of what you're reading in the Old Testament. You don't have to turn there. I'll just give it to you. Hebrews chapter 3 is a New Testament explanation of what's going on. Very quick. Chapter 3 of Hebrews, verse 16. It'll be on the screen. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? Hebrews 3, speaking of this very account we just read. Here's the explanation, verse 19. So we see that they were unable to enter because of, what's the word? Unbelief. Writer of Hebrews says, here's your commentary. They saw the work of God, they experienced the promises of God, and when it came down to it, they were standing on the verge of the promises of God, and because of unbelief, they could not enter My question is, what does that look like in our lives today? I mean, what, what is unbelief? It, quickly, and then we're going to have our guys that we're going to talk about it. Unbelief, all of us, apart from Christ, are naturally unbelieving. That's the way our hearts are wired. So in one sense, every person apart from the Lord Jesus is unbelieving. We doubt God's character. We deny who he is. We question his word. We don't believe his faithfulness. We don't care about his instruction. That's our condition apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of those are in this condition here. We'll talk about that in a minute. It can also be residue in the life of a believer that even though you've been set free, even though God has revealed himself to you, even though the Spirit of God is living within you, you can act in unbelief with devastating consequences in our life. These are to be instruction to us, warning to us as we read this. And by the way, this difficult situation did not create unbelief in the people. It revealed the unbelief that was already there. Do you That's a good word. Oh, well, I'm going through this tough situation. And man, I, it just caused me to. No, it didn't. It revealed what was already there. The unbelief was already present in their heart. They're, on the, they're in this situation now that what's there gets revealed. And that's what happens to you and me. So this unbelief is revealed in their heart. Here's what I want to do very quickly. I'm going to give you three big ideas that roll out of this. I'm not even going to talk about them. I'm just going to give them to you. I may say a quick word. Yeah. And then I'm going to pray for us. Guys are going to join me on stage, and we're going to talk this out. So here's some, here's some ideas about unbelief, and we're going to talk about these this morning. These are warnings for us. Big idea number one, unbelief associates with God's activity, but rejects repentance and genuine safe, saving faith in Christ Jesus. In other words, unbelievers can associate with the people of God. They can look like they're walking among the people of God. But at the end of the day, their heart has never come to genuine faith and repentance. And time will reveal that. It's possible to be surrounded by the activity of God, to appear to be in with the people of God, and time will reveal, no, 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 there's still an unbelieving heart there. Hebrews 4 says, you've never been united by faith in the person of Christ and Christ alone. Number two, I'm you, this is painfully practical to us. Unbelief considers personal experience human understanding, and my own perspective as authoritative instead of God's Word. Wow. Here's what that looks like. I know what God says, but... Devastating consequences. Thirdly, 
unbelief is characteristic of spiritual immaturity. There's some great immaturity going on here among these believers. Really quick, they have a low view of God. I mean, listen, after all they've seen, all they've experienced, they say, God's taken us in the land to kill us. He didn't love us. He didn't care anything about us. We can't really trust him. They forget past faithfulness. Wouldn't it be better to go back to Egypt? They have this bitterness that arises. They reject God-ordained authority. All these evidences of just immaturity in their lives. So here's what I'm going to do this morning, all right? I want us to ponder and wrestle with these things. I want these things to help us, instruct us, and pierce our hearts. So I'm going to say a word of prayer for us. And I want you to just kind of enter into even a kind of a, an attitude of response right now. I'm going to pray. And then the guys are going to join me on stage. I'm going to pray Hebrews chapter 3. You just listen. I'm going to pray a couple verses over you. And then we're going to have an elder conversation. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 12 and 13 says this. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day. That's what we're doing. As long as it is called today that none of you should be hardened, hard heart, because of the deceitfulness of sin. So, Father, I pray over the next few minutes, even as we talk these things out together, Lord, I pray that your word will not return void. God, I pray that you will soften our hearts to not just see these events as happening a long time ago and having no effect on us. Bring us to repentance. Bring us to worship. Bring us to obedience. And let us exhort one another day by day. In Jesus' name we pray. All right, I'm going to ask uh, Pastor Paul, Pastor Daniel to come on up here and join me on stage. And again, kind of already explained uh, what this is going to be about. Uh, the idea is a few of your elders that love you dearly, love these guys. Daniel, you can come on up. I thought you were wandering around in there. I didn't know what you were doing. Come on up. And uh, we put some thought and prayer into this. And the idea is, okay, let's take what we just read and let's say, what does that look like in our lives? What does that look like in our church? And what does this mean to us today? So we're going to take some of these and apply these things. Hey, guys, I'm doing okay. It's in the early service. I've been gone for a week. I haven't seen these guys in over a week, so it's good to see you all. Um, so we're going to press these out. I think it'll be helpful. I think it'll be challenging for you. So let's do this way. Paul, why don't you take the first one, and we can talk through this. We said this, this big truth is the idea. It's possible to be among the activity of God's people. It's, po it's possible to even observe and watch. I mean, Here's these guys, they had seen all that God had done, but at the end of the day, in their heart, they had never come to saving faith in, in God, in the Messiah that was to come. It's possible, especially I would say here, you're too close to me, Paul, I guess you back, maybe never, just kidding. It's possible, especially here in the Bible Belt, man, to be surrounded by God's activity, but never have come to saving genuine faith. So, Let's talk about that for a second. What does that look like? What's the encouragement challenge for us? You take that one, and maybe, Daniel, you can add to it. Sure. Um, I, I do think the question you're asking is really important. When we think about conversion, what is true conversion and belief and, and unbelief? And in Hebrews, which you read a few minutes ago, it, it, it challenged us to, to check ourselves, to check our faith. 
And so what is genuine conversion? I think really simply genuine conversion is placing your faith in Christ alone by grace alone uh, and, and trusting in Jesus. And so the Bible talks about that's what saving faith is, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone. Um, in our culture, I think the challenge is that we tend to place faith not by grace alone and faith alone and Christ alone, but we place it in an experience or in a feeling. Yeah. Uh, so we look back to something that happened to us a long time ago, and we try to hang salvation on what happened back then and how we felt back then in that moment. And when you read this Hebrews 3 passage that, that, you, that you read a few minutes ago and that we're, we're kind of basing this off of, it doesn't talk about an experience. It doesn't talk about a feeling. And when it does talk about the heart, it's questioning the heart. It's, yeah. it's, it's coming up against the heart. And so there are marks here, genuine saving faith looks like a continued pursuit of Jesus. So it looks like taking care, verse 12, you know, looking at yourself, measuring your heart, measuring your sin, you know, trying to see if you are where you need to be. It looks like admonishment with other brothers and sisters in Christ. So letting other people speak into my life, me speaking into their life. It's pursuit, it's resting in Christ, but it's pursuing obedience. So I think those are the things that, that mark what saving faith is. And so the question for us in the room, twofold, uh, individually, has this happened to me? And are these things, are these markers at work in me? And if they're not at work in me, I should question, do I have an unbelieving heart in, in a sense that I'm, I'm not a Christ follower? And then secondly, a lot of the people we talk about three names and go moments, mm. most of the people we're going to be talking to here in the South, they're going to point to an experience and a feeling. The conversation we need to take it through is not experience and feeling, but these markers, that, that self-reflection, uh, that self-awareness of is this, these things true in me, the pursuit, the admonishment, all that kind of stuff. Is it playing itself out in their lives? Do we see fruit? I don't know if you want to add that yeah sure so uh, as we walk through this i'm gonna give you three words you can kind of go back to your life group go back to your family talk about one is repentance and this goes along with what paul's saying so the authentic jesus follower lives a life of repentance it's not something that just happens once and so the issue with what he's talking about when he mentions experience so if you're here in this room and you're claim to being in Christ is solely on an experience. Here's why that's a problem. That's in the past. It's past tense. You're trying to remember something back then. And it is true. Your justification happens in a moment. We get that. I understand that. But all the charges in the New Testament speak to a present tense working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Jesus said, you'll know my disciples by their fruits. It's present in their life. And that can sound a little bit to the church like, well, that's a works thing. You're saying I have to like prove I'm in Christ. No, that's not how that happens. The Holy Spirit that indwells you is the same spirit that revealed the truth of who God is and convicted you and led you to repentance and saving faith and justification. It is that same spirit that indwells you now that is conforming you, transforming you into the image of Christ. If you are truly a Christ follower, the Spirit indwells you and is at work in you. Yeah. That, that, that can't not happen. It's going to happen. And so we realize whether we're in Christ or not by the evidence of the Spirit within us. That's present tense. Does that mean you're perfect? No. 
but that means there is in you a longing to be transformed, a longing to set aside the old self and take on the new self in Christ. That's happening and playing itself out in your life each day. If you're sitting there going, well, I'm a believer because in 1993, I prayed a prayer. You don't see that anywhere in the New Testament. What you always see is the present tense of the working out of their salvation that acknowledges the Holy Spirit's work in them. And so I think that's uh, been a, probably a, uh, just a lie we've bought into, especially here in Western Christianity, because it's easier. Oh, it's easier just to look back and say, I did that, checked it off my list, than to continue to live a life in which we see ourselves uh, being transformed into the image of Christ day after day after day, living a life of repentance. So I think you could sum it up this way. What's true about a person, and I think it's what you guys are saying, will become evident over time. So here's these guys. They have been in the midst of God's activity. Everyone thought, oh, well, they're believers just like the rest of us. But there was this situation that became a struggle, became difficult, and what was in their heart became evident. Genuine salvation will bear fruit. That's what we're talking about. A false conversion will show up that it, there's no truth there. Over time, that will show up. The evidence will be lacking in our lives. So good. So it's a, well, it's a warning. It's a challenge for us, especially in the Bible Belt, who I think twists and distorts that. So and Jesus talked about that too. The parable of the seed, you know, and the different types of seed. But sure. but the type that goes into the soil springs up quickly but then burns out over time or gets choked out over time. It's not, never actually took root. Yeah, and so, so again, be clear. We're not saying in any way that a person is born again or saved by works. Genuine salvation will produce works in keeping with genuine repentance. That's the point. What's there will become evident over time. So let's chase it a little bit this way. Secondly, the, the, the second big truth we chased or big idea was, okay, so even as believers, this thing as unbelief can there's residue of it, and we can simply be making decisions. We can be simply right now uh, setting the direction for the course of our life, whether it's how we spend our money, how we raise our kids, uh, job decisions, whether or not I'm going to plant my life in a cross-cultural setting to advance the gospel, and we not doing that out of unbelief, fear, doubt, all that. We can be as believers setting the direction and course of our life more from a place of unbelief than trusting the promise of God. That's what you see. I couldn't get over that just jumping out of the story. And that's true for us. So what does that look like in our life today? Just again, bring it to 2020 right here, Trust Cities Baptist Church, Daniel. Sure. So that happens when we're, we don't have sound doctrine. So that's the second word for you, doctrine. So we talked about repentance. We're talking about doctrine, which means when we as Christ followers set our aim, we set our aim to the truth that has been revealed by God through his word. In other words, truth is outside of us. It's not just our heart, our emotion, our experience. Truth is revealed by God through his spirit, through the word. It's in his word. It's absolute. And that's so important because here's what happens. Think of it this way. In Revelation, we're, we're told of a church, right? There's a specific church, Laodicea, and they have they have watered down so much what it means to be a Christian. They're lukewarm. You can't tell the difference between them and the false Christians. And I, here's what I want to say that to us in our setting. We have so watered down doctrine 
and truth in our discipleship and in our churches, it's almost indistinguishable to the lost person who is sitting in this room who thinks they're one of us to see any difference. Mm. And the reason that's happened is because we've stopped talking about truth. We've been, we've, we're convinced that if we offend someone that's, that's wrong, if, if, if they disagree, that might hurt their feelings. And so what's happened is we've elevated this view of relational equity, and we've said that God will only move in these people if it happens through me in this relationship, in this relational equity setting. And what we've minimized in that is doctrine. And the implications of that has been the church and its definition is so watered down, we can't see the difference between what's authentic and what's fake. And the solution to that is a discipleship that has a high view of scripture that says, I will not just follow my feelings. I'll not just see what's circumstantial. They looked into Canaan and they're afraid of the Canaanites. Yeah. Listen, what they should have been afraid of was God. Like they should have had a fear for him. And so what you're wrestling with in this is when you have a low view of doctrine, compromise comes in. And as that happens, it thwarts discipleship. And again, you can see that in all kinds of simple ways in your life. You can see that in your homes. You can see that in your marriages. If you stop having authentic conversations where there's correction and admonishment and challenge, you're in trouble. None of you would ever try to parent that way. But as the church, we've begun to try to disciple that way. And as a result, we are a people who are following our hearts and our perceptions and not seeking to align to the truth of God's word as it's been revealed. And that's creating all kinds of tensions for yeah, us. That's helpful. Add, add to that a little bit. Yeah, and so I, I think really practically, uh, a great question to ask yourself is, who is my authority? What is my authority? That's what we're talking about when we're talking about right doctrine. Like, who is... The authority in my life. And I think one of the unique things that we see happening in the children of Israel that Hebrews speaks to, and then if you're taking notes, I'd encourage you to write down Psalm 95 as well, because Psalm 95 speaks to the same occurrence that's happening in the life of Israel. Listen to what it says. It says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. And so you see this thing, again, that you guys have already said, my heart, my heart, my heart. And we just live in a culture and an age today, and our staff team, some of our leaders in our church, we were watching uh, a video talking about this, where truth is found within, not outside of ourselves. So you follow your heart, be true to yourself, you be who you are, everything comes from within. And that goes straight against what we're reading in these verses that yeah. say, no, you can't trust your heart. Your heart goes astray, your heart is hardened. Um, and so as a dad, this is a conversation we have. You know, we, we watch Disney movies and I have a daughter and she loves Elsa and you know, Frozen 2 and all that stuff. Let it go. And let it, just let it go. And in the most recent Frozen movie, Frozen 2, the heroine Elsa, she sings this song at the end of the movie, and the line goes, you are the one you've been looking for. Well, what is she saying? Everything you need and you're looking for is found within. Just look within. Follow your heart. Yeah. Be true to yourself. Well, that's false doctrine. That, that, that's placing the emphasis on truth being within instead of it being without upon God. The authority is found within me instead of around me. And so 
really practically, we have to be careful to not listen to those lies ourselves, but then as parents and leaders, when we hear and we see those things in culture, because it's all over the place, call that out. That is a system of belief that is not in line with God's Word. It's not in line with right doctrine. Uh, And so who is our authority, and are we following our hearts, or are we following God? Yeah, so let me sum that up then. It's so helpful and challenging, and so it's possible to be in a place, again, regularly, big decisions, small decisions, whatever it is, that we are making the decision based on my own perception, my best understanding, my experience, and we're saying that has greater authority than what God has declared to be true. And the consequences of that can be devastating. Again, from how we parent, how we spend our money, uh, it's endless, every area of life. And that's, I think, what we see. So see that in our own lives and then add to that what it says in Hebrews. And by the way, it's not just about you holding on to the truth. We're to call each other to the truth. Because you got a guy here, Caleb, in this story who calls the other spies to account and says, no, 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 that's not true. We really can go take the land because God has declared it to be so. And you know what they wanted to do to Caleb? Stone him. <laughs> Holding to the truth can be costly. And that's what we see here in the story. So let's take the third one really quick and then we'll wrap it up. It's also we see here some uh, evidences of just, you could just call it maturity. And I listed some of those. We talked about those. It might, might help us. How do we see that in our own lives and in the lives of our church? I really just want to sing Let It Go. I think it would be awesome. <laughs> you totally should. I, I can't do it. Anthony's like, don't go there. No. Look at her. Anthony's like, dude, I've heard you sing. Don't try. All right, I won't. I won't. I promise. I promise. So third word, all right, transformation. Transformation. So uh, if you're in Christ and there has been a point in time in your life where there's true, truly been repentance and saving faith, you are declaring that you want to be a new person. It's built into what you're saying. When you acknowledge that you are in Christ, here's what you're saying. I long to be transformed into a new person. Not just made into a better person, but transformed into a completely new person. And that means all that old stuff dies. In you, there is a longing to turn from that and turn to a new life in Christ. And so when you, when you wrestle through this and you're talking about maturing, as the church, we are called to do that together. We're called to be part of that with one another. It's discipleship. It's fellowship. It's, it's just connected into our sense of community. And so the challenge that I would have for you as parents, as spouses, family members, friends, life group, Pursue transformation. Pursue transformation. Pursue the transformation of others. Proclaim sound doctrine. Speak to what is right and wise. Call those around you to repent, to change. 
Will that happen overnight? No. It'll be messy. It'll take time. Every time someone points out truth to me that is convicting, I immediately argue with them. I never am like, oh, okay. That never happens in my life. For you super spiritual people, good for you. It doesn't happen for me. I argue. I resist. It takes time. The Spirit has to work in me. But I am so grateful for the people who love me enough who want to see me transformed because ultimately the Spirit that indwells me is at work, and I align and want that work in my life. And so the challenge is be part of transformation, not just this casual, I got my arm around you, affirmation. I I don't, listen, I don't want to be affirmed. I want to be transformed. I don't want to just be a better me. I don't want to just be encouraged for something small. I want to be transformed into the image of Christ and for him to have complete glory and honor in my life. That's what I long for. And so be part of that in other people's lives. Pursue that in your own life and set aside those simple things that seem to uh, distract us and align for transformation. And that'll, again, Mike said, there's so many examples of that to try to chase them. You can't get through them at all. And they even seem small when you start trying to list them out, but it's in everything. Yeah. Yeah. Immaturity, maturity. I think one of the things that we see that goes right along with transformation, because it's one of the ways we're transformed, is that we give our hearts to the pursuit of loving God with our all. And loving others, loving our neighbors, ourselves. You know what? What? What Jesus said is the most important commandment. And He said, "New commandment I give you: is you would love one another, just as I've loved you. Love the church." And so that gets expressed in this everyday pursuit. So in Psalm 95, one of the things that that God says is that they have not known my ways. That's intimacy language. Like the children of Israel, they they weren't pursuing God. And then in Hebrews 3, it says, "Exhort one another." every day. That's a day-by-day thing, a day-by-day allowing people to speak into our lives, a day, every day, day day-by-day speaking the truth into other people's lives, as long as it's called today. And as far as I know, every day that I've been a part of is called today. So every day, every day, not some days, not Sundays, not life group days, every day, we're calling people to pursue Jesus, we're letting them call us to pursue Jesus, and we're bringing our lives in that. So just really, really practically, and, and this just gets on all of us, but it is immature if we spend more time on social media than we do in the Word or in prayer. It's immature. It's immature if I spend more time thinking about, listening to, watching, promoting politics than I do in the Word or in Scripture. It's immature if I spend more time planning for the next family trip, the next family sport, the next family event than I do leading my family in prayer and study of the Word. We could just go on and on and on, and, and I don't mean to be mean, but I just, if we want to know, are we maturing or are we immaturing, what do we love most with our time? To go back to your point, what do we love most with our money? What do we love most with our relationships? And are we reorienting every part of our lives because we're being transformed around God and around the gospel? And so do what it says, take care, take personal inventory, Ask the Lord, ask the Spirit, what's out of alignment for me? What am I giving an inordinate amount of my heart to, like you were talking about earlier? And most of the time, it's born out of insecurity and born out of fear of the wrong things, not fear of the Lord, like you said earlier. And even the children of Israel, they were operating out of fear and insecurity instead of fearing the one that matters most. Good. Fellas, thank you. 
I'll be quick. super, super quick. I'll ask the team to come on up while Daniel wrap it up. So one of the things that happens, and I just, I just want you to understand these things that we're calling one another to, you're not going to want to do them all the time. They're, they're not always comfortable, and they're not always just natural, and they're not always things that you go, man, I can't wait to do that. Sometimes it's just the resolve of aligning yourself to truth. One of the things that happens to me is, you know, I have the responsibility, the privilege to teach the word as to you as a church. And I will stand before God and give an account. And so inevitably we'll come through a text and it'll have something really hard in it. And you'll say that really hard thing. And someone will come by and say, Pastor Daniel, thank you so much. You're just so bold. Can I just be honest with you? I am not bold. I am just more afraid of God than I am of you. I really do. I fear. I fear not being faithful. I don't want to. It's not a want to. It's not my personality. I don't, I don't want to do those things. I do those things out of worship and out of a pursuit of faithfulness and longing to see transformation in my life and yours because I'm more afraid of him than you. Not because I just align to a place I want to. To this day, I've never wanted to. Mm. Uh, and, and there's so many things like that. And we just need to be reminded that this transformation will not always be natural to us. It will not always be comfortable to us. It wasn't easy for Caleb to say, yeah. we should go. Yeah. That was not an easy thing for him to say. Yeah. So I hope this has helped you see what we read in 1 Corinthians, that these things that you're reading and we're walking through God's Word are written for our instruction. They're, they're examples, and they're written for our instruction. So here's, here's the way we're going to close. We're going to end and just going to sing a song of response. But the hope right now is to do, do what we've said. Take, take care, brothers and sisters. It's like we've been reading in Hebrews. Is there in any of us an evil, unbelieving heart that's Never come to know the true God. There's no evidence in our lives right now of knowing God whatsoever. Be warned. And then those of us who do know Christ, am I operating from a place of trust, belief, or a place of doubt, fear, perspective, all of that? Am I operating out of a place of unbelief? So let me just ask you, bow your heads right there where you're seated. Our team's going to play. I pray this is just an opportunity to respond to the Spirit of God this morning. And that we would fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, sat down at the right hand of God, that we set our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. Father, I thank you for this time. Lord, I pray we are transformed and continually transformed into the image of the Lord Jesus. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Why don't you go ahead and stand.